director and Bowling for Soup super fan. And I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and recovering investigative reporter. Ah, mine's more upbeat. Yeah, uh, you tend to like pop punk. I love pop punk, and I love Bowling for Soup specifically because uh, their lyrics are beautiful and really tell you a story. Do they still make music? I have no idea. Well, I mean, like, could you go see them now? Do they tour? I have no idea. How does that make you a super fan then? I listen to them on Spotify way more than pretty much anybody else. Okay, that's true. I mean, you could like join their mailing list or follow one of them on social media. No, I don't feel the need. Do you? Do you <laughs> okay. <laughs> so your definition of super fan is very loose. Yeah, I listen to them a lot. I mean, but like the old stuff. Well, yeah, I don't know if there's new stuff. I really know nothing about them. Sometimes it's like I feel bad because bands will make new stuff and I'm like, no one wants this. I know. And I feel – I'm like, good for you, you know, to keep doing it. But then when you go to the concert and they play the new stuff and you're like, Ugh, just what play the old stuff. I know. But I think like that would apply to us, right? What if we like went out and like read our new book, you know, read excerpts from our new book and then everyone was like, read the old book. I can't see any scenario where that would happen. <laughs> But that would suck, right? We would feel, like, pretty shitty about it. If you're in a band um, and you're listening to this, write in. Let us know if that makes you feel like shit. It'd be so cool if we had people who listen to this who are in a band. My partner's in a band. Oh, yeah. There we go. Dreams do come true, kids. I feel bad because I don't I, – I love your old stuff, honey. <laughs> <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal – Honesty. And we are brutally honest. Bands, don't play your new stuff. We hate it. I would never say that to their face. Really? No, that's so mean. Yeah. And then do you know like bands get so upset because people only want to hear the old stuff and they get so mad? But if I went to see Britney Spears and she didn't play Toxic, I would riot. Well, I think you have to do a mix. Yeah. So like I like some new stuff Blink-182's done. Me too, actually. Yeah, so. Mix it up. Yeah, keep creating. And then when you come back for the encore... Do a hit. Yeah, do a hit then, for <laughs> sure. We have a very exciting episode for you guys this week. We are talking to Craig Antico from RIP Medical Debt, which is one of my favorite organizations. I'm really excited to talk to him. And later we're going to discuss, can people really change? I mean, I I don't have high hopes, but... You don't? No, I think they can. I don't know. Woo, we're uh, going to get into we'll it. We'll get into it. But first, hit it. International question. Anonymous. I respect it. No location. No location. Look, I get being anonymous, but give me a location. It's for the sake of the song. Even a fake location. Yeah, tell me whatever. Anonymous, the bowels of hell. (laughs) (laughs) Anonymous says, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 about six months ago, and I'm struggling in my relationship. Oh. My relationship feels like a constant roller coaster for me. Very much like my hypomania and depression phases. You've come to the right place. Bipolar 2 over here. I never argue with my partner and we rarely have issues, but sometimes I feel nothing for him. And sometimes I feel so much love, I feel overwhelmed. Those times feel great, but the periods of time I feel nothing, I start questioning everything. 
How does Gabby deal with it, and does she relate to this issue? <laughs> okay, well. Uh, I'm as, just going to take a quick nap. You fit, you address Yeah, the exactly. Uh, as some of you know, I also have bipolar 2. Uh, I am on Sertraline and Lamictal in terms of medications. Also a touch of Clonopin and Seroquel, depending on how I feel. Um, so here's the thing. Hypomania is when you are super manic and you feel everything at once and you are out of control in that way in that everything seems urgent, you're rushing around, everything see it's not necessarily good. It's like feelings of everything being so important and so um shrouded in this delusion that everyone is thinking about you and that everything is uh the end of the world. But also conversely like everything is the best. Uh, So it depends on how it manifests. Depression is some people mistakenly believe that it means you are sad, which sort of, but it also can manifest in numbness or feeling like feeling nothing, feeling like you're uh, garbage or you, you just are like a leaf floating in a lake, like you're fucking nothing. And so those swing back and forth, welcome to bipolar, swing back and forth uh, from one to the other. Usually, now that I'm medicated, it, it can be leveled out, but definitely there are periods of severe depression where you just uh, go blank and uh, severe hypomania where you decide uh, that you need to move to Japan and get a degree in engineering even though uh, you've never wanted to do that before. Or conversely, you decide that you're the biggest loser in the world and um, you should go live in a hole. In Japan? Yeah, in Japan, but no (laughs) engineering degree. So here's the thing. It may not actually have anything to do with your partner. It may have to do with when you're hypomanic, you feel so much love. And I have, I relate to that. Sometimes when I'm hypomanic, I love the person that I'm with so much, I cry all the time. And, and part of hypomania is you're so overwhelmed with emotion, there's nowhere to put it. So it starts externalizing. Uh, whereas um, when you are depressed, that will be the period of time where you feel nothing about him. And of course, you start to question everything because you're like, why isn't this person making me feel the way that they usually make me feel? However, it has nothing to do with them and your actual like relationship with them and your opinions of them probably have not changed. It's just what's going on in you and your brain chemistry. So now the question becomes, how do you um, keep your grip on reality during those times? And it was much harder for me when I was younger. Now, a big thing that I do is I can recognize that it is the mental illness. So I used to really, really convince myself that what I was feeling was absolutely true, whether in hypomania or in depression. Um, obviously I'm not perfect. Like last April, I, um, felt, uh, a super depression again, not just sadness, but like numbness physically numbness in the body, uh, a sense that there's no reason for me to be alive or to exist. And, um, that never really manifested in crying. It mostly, I mean, it manifested in suicidal ideation. So, um, and that nothing matters and that it doesn't matter if I died. So, Uh, that stuff still happens for me, but I separate it from my relationship and I separate it from my friendships. So you have to realize that it is going on inside your head and it's not true. You know, that's not the time to make decisions. Like don't get engaged in hypomania or break up in a depression. 
there's a shroud over everything and you're not seeing clearly. And a lot of times it was hard for me to control my behavior too. Like I would, you know, immediately when I was dating someone, I would say I love you way too quickly because I was hypomanic or I would uh, break up with someone in a text message because I was depressive, push them away, whatever it is. And um, I think you really have to not externalize onto your partner. It's not, it's a, it's not a reflection of them. You question everything because of what's going on in your brain. You're not questioning everything because you actually feel nothing for this person. I think that you also really need to remember that the way that you're feeling in that moment will not last forever. Temporary. Super so temporary. To know that like even just from looking at the past being like, okay, so in the past I felt this before, but then a week later I didn't feel this. So that's probably going to happen again. Keep a journal. I have a, an app on my phone and you can keep a, a journal of uh, like what you felt each day and like when you felt this or whatever. And then it's helpful to go back and be like, oh, no, I have felt like I wanted to die before. And then the next day I felt fine. And I can imagine that the times when you're feeling nothing towards your partner are the scariest. Um, mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, God, like, who is this person? I, You know, but I think that you can't put pressure on yourself to feel infatuated with them in that moment you know like don't feel like oh my god if I don't want to kiss them if I don't want to be with them at all times like then this relationship is doomed I think it's okay to be like look even if I wasn't bipolar relationships have ups and downs people without this disorder still feel levels of this with Mm -hmm. their partner and that's just normal that's just the normal ebb and flow of it Um, and don't get don't ascribe too much meaning to it I think also you really have to talk to your partner. You really have to communicate this to them. I know it might feel hurtful to say these things, but like I think you have to say, look, I have I have this mental illness. Um, I do feel like I really love you and care about you. When I am not in these states, I feel like I love and care about you. Now, when you're in a depressive state, that is not an excuse to be mean to them. That is not an excuse to say fucked up shit to them. That is not an excuse to treat them like garbage. Um, however, you can say, look, get out ahead of it. I, I, I sometimes get in these depressive states where I don't feel anything. It's not a reflection on how I feel about you. I may not want to kiss. I may not want to be as loving. I may not want to have sex because I'm in a depressive episode. However, I can promise you that when I am in these episodes, I will try to get better. I will either we wait it out. And if we wait it out for longer than let's say three weeks, you set a timeline, whatever, uh, then I will talk about changing my medication or I will, uh, you know, do, I don't know, start going to the gym more or whatever, do things to try to get out of it and assure them that it is temporary. And I think that because you're also experienced the hypomania that you don't necessarily know what it feels like for other people who are in love. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's just like, Nice. <laughs> Do you That's know what I thing. mean? Like, it's not like an all-consuming, like, crazy, have to be with you at all times, like, overwhelming, I'm crying because I love you so much. You know, for a lot of people, it might look more like when you're feeling nothing. <laughs> yeah, or or middle ground. Or there's a middle ground. So I think that, I think because you've experienced the hypomania, you maybe have, like, a skewed view of what it is to be in love. But a lot of times, a long-term relationship is just, like, day in, day out, like, mm-hmm. enjoying each other's company, watching TV, and going to sleep. The roller coaster is not inherent to all relationships. It is not a feature of relationships. It is a bug. 
a lot of people think that because of movies and because of past experiences, they think that love, like an actual uh, a romantic relationship uh, that's meant to be, is full of drama and highs and lows and full of um, this feeling that you have to be with the person at all times and you have to have them and you you are just so obsessed. Um, and that is unhealthy. And that is uh, a borderline, I would say, a form of, of addiction. Um, and also, you know, hypomania and bipolar 2 does have a lot of issues with very – it's comorbid with a lot of, like, addiction stuff, right? Because you can never have enough. You can never have enough. But I also think the fact that you only were diagnosed six months ago, right now is the time to focus on you. Yes. You know, right now is the time to make sure that you're getting stable, that you're on the right meds, that your therapy is working. And hopefully your partner will get that. And I would make your life the focal point right now. And then maybe in another six months or a year when you're more stable, then you can sort of examine your relationship if you're still in it a bit more. But Mm -hmm. right now the priority is you and you really just need to take care of yourself. And you will be okay. I used to get very upset because I thought the the point is never to relapse. You'll never relapse. Um, and you will. And I do. Uh, I'm much better. Much, 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 hundred thousand times better. Um, because of awareness, because of medication, because of just like keeping track of everything and taking care of myself. But uh, it, it, you do relapse. You absolutely do. Um, and that's okay also. That's okay. Like you're in the first six months, you know what I mean? Like I'm years in and I still sometimes relapse, but the relapses are much shorter and I'm aware of them and I can warn people around me and I can um, have a bit more of a handle. Even if I even if I still am feeling the feelings, I can go, I know what this is. Mm-hmm. Ugh, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. Good luck. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We have a very juicy interview all about medical debt with Craig Antico. Just between us. Hey! Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week, we are here with Craig Antico from RIP Medical Debt, which is an organization that I am obsessed with and um, so excited to talk about and have more people know about. Hello, Craig. Hi there. How are you, Allison and... Gabby! Wow! Wow, people always know Gabby and they don't know me, so that was very exciting. Hold the phone. (laughs) I I am the person who wanted this to happen. Let's go! (laughs) Wow. Well, this is uh, just between us with Allison and no one else. (laughs) Uh, Well, first of all, tell us what RIP Medical Debt does. We reduce the hardship of this horrible medical debt that's out there by buying it. Like as if we're a debt buyer, and then instead of collecting on it, we wipe it out. So how do you do that? Well, you have to know how to value the debt, and you have to know the people that buy the debt. And then you go and negotiate with them, and you can buy debt in any part of the country. And you do that for probably a little bit less than one cent on the dollar, maybe even like a half a penny sometimes. And we're able then to take a donor's money, like a dollar will abolish $100 of debt. Wow. So for people who aren't familiar with the medical debt crisis and how it all works with creditors and everything, so you owe money to, let's say, the hospital. 
And then the host- and then can you take us through what then happens, what the hospital does with that debt? The problem is that the hospital has maybe one collector for every 8,000 accounts they have. So there's no way they can handle the number of people that come through the hospital. So they have to use collection agencies. And a collection agency is like an extension of the hospital. Sometimes in the early stages, maybe that 90 days, they'll start collecting as the hospital. So you won't even know that it's a collection agency calling you. It won't affect your credit. But they're trying to find out, hey, did you get the bill? Can you pay it? Things like that. They're very, very easygoing. Then it gets harsh, a little more harsh as the time goes by. Maybe after six months, they're starting to demand that you better talk to us. So now the debt collectors are contacting you more and more um, aggressively, right? Sure. Then they, they get more aggressive. They place your account on the credit report. So like one mark, one bad mark can drop your credit rating by like 30 to 100 points. And even though people don't even know it, that could equate to like a 30 or 40% increase in your prices for insurance, for your, for your car loans, for any kind of loans. It's just atrocious how much this affects your credit. So that's the leverage that these collectors have is that it's going to go on your credit report. Because about 15 million people, that's, they only have one bad mark. It's a medical debt. So I, there's some discussion that uh, I've heard people say that you don't have to pay back medical debt and that there's like it, there's no there's nothing that dings your credit report or something like what. Why would people say that? Oh, you know, what's happening is there, there's like a different FICO scores. FICO is the company that creates one of the most, um, I guess, prevalent credit scores for mortgages and stuff like that. And there's different versions of them. Like the the mortgage industry uses the older version, which actually includes all the medical debt. The newer version is used by companies that sell cars and other other parts. So the, the mortgage industry is still seeing those credit those bad marks. However, the new credit score actually has medical debt on it, but if you pay it, it comes off it. But if you don't pay it, it's the same bad mark as it was before. And basically, like, these hospitals are selling off the debt to these collectors, right? So the hospital makes a profit. You know, this is an interesting part of the hospital. Hospitals all use collection agencies. And they might go through five or six collection agencies over, like, two or three years. And then they have to come to a point and say, well, is it worth me to keep sending accounts to next collection agency, next collection agency? Why don't I sell it and get all the money up front and not have to wait for the next two, three, four years? So that's what their incentive is to sell it. They're already losing money and are losing money on these customers that can't pay. But there's so many of them that they have to do something. Now, only a third of all hospitals sell their debt. So this is not a a tremendously big thing that's done, selling debt. How many people, say again, how many people are are using your website or have medical debt in America and how, how much does it come to total? We have seen on credit reports, there's about 60 million people. Oh my God. That have credit, have bad marks on their credit that are in collection. And that totals up about $80 billion. Wow. Now, interestingly, that's a tip of the iceberg. 
we just wrote a book called End Medical Debt. And in that book, we talk about that only about 8 to 10% of all medical debt is even on the credit reports. It's on people's heads, but they're, you know, it's not on the credit report. So we estimate there's almost a trillion dollars of medical debt, like from the last seven, eight years. And a lot of these people have insurance, right? But then it's their insurance not covering the full amount. Yeah, there's a, what's interesting, we're shifting a lot of the costs to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Whereas like in the year 2000, only about 10% of the revenue that a hospital got and the money that they got was from the patient. Now it's 30% is coming from the patient. Why is that happening? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because deductibles are so high. Mm. Only about 25% of the people ever even reach their deductible. So they're paying, no matter if they have insurance or not, they're paying the first dollar. They're like no different than than the person with no insurance because they have to pay the first dollar. Like there's 68 million people in this country that are what I call underinsured or uninsured. And people on this podcast should listen to this. They should take their income and take their deductible and see if their deductible is equal to 5% or more of their income. If it is, you're underinsured and you're, you're putting yourself at risk. So instead of just going for the cheapest insurance and saying, hey, I got insurance, well, what good is that? If you have a $4,000 deductible for each person and you're never going to hit it. So that means you're going to be out up to $4,000 before the insurance even kicks in. I think people don't realize that medical debt is so prevalent because there's a lot of shame connected to it. Um, how do how do you guys see, or how do you, you know, talk to people who have so much shame surrounding medical debt and like, why, why is it so shameful? Well, there's two parts of it. One is illness. Illness is something that people are ashamed of. And then debt, because you, you can't pay it. We've been taught to pay our bills. We've been taught to be able to, you don't want to not pay and be, you know, quote unquote, a deadbeat. Mm-hmm. Well, shoot, if these people are getting bills that they can't pay and never will be able to pay, to me, that's not even right. And yeah, they're not the deadbeat. Yeah, it's it's like they're pushing the debt onto people that can't pay. It's 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 such an unfair situation. And like, if you look at the people that even go bankrupt, like 600,000 people go bankrupt each year just for medical debt and, you know, medical expenses. But 75% of those people had insurance. So what the hell? It's like, it's not even helping the darn people. I Listen to this one. I just got insurance for my employees. And I, knowing that I'm in a charity that is preventing, you know, you know being ruined by financial and disaster by, you know, medical, I could not for the life of me, come up with a plan that was going to make sure that my people didn't have financial ruin because of medical debt. Just based on what's available? Yeah, there was not enough available. I mean, I have less than 10 employees and there's just nothing out there. And this is with the biggest companies, very good brokers. Um, It wasn't available. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. A company that wants to do this can't even do it. So how can the companies that don't want to do it 
<laughs> what are they giving their customers, their employees? I mean, it's it's just a shame. So is this just like a big racket? Like, why is this going on other than that there's a severe lack of empathy going <laughs> happening in this country? <laughs> well, the costs are out of control. Um, our, our help here when we're abolishing debt is really just a resolutionary approach. It's just to help people that have a problem with the medical debt and paying it. But this is not the solution. I mean, I'd have to raise about $2 billion a year, maybe $1.5 billion a year to wipe out all the debt that causes hardship. Oh, like Jeff Bezos? Jeff Bezos sneezes into that amount of money and then (laughs) does nothing to help anyone? Well, I could do it with about one and a half billion. I'm sure the billionaires in this country could get together and say, here's a half a billion, here's a half a billion, here's a half a billion. And then I'd be able to buy all the debt that's causing this hardship. Without a doubt, we could do that. But right now, I've only abolished $1.5 billion for 700,000 people. And I need a lot more money to get up to the you know, $500 billion mark. That's what we need to, to get to. Can you talk about your personal experience of being in the debt collecting industry and then moving on to the charity? Sure. I I actually hated being a debt collector. (laughs) 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 It's one of the hardest things. I even ran collection agencies and I, I really just never liked it at all. I mean, I had to rationalize why I was of use to the world. It was really tough. Um, How did you get into it in the first place? No, I was in a family business Mm. and all of a sudden I started making a lot of money. And the next thing you know, I'm like, well, I've got a graduate degree, but where am I going to make this kind of money? Right. (laughs) I I just kept doing it. And then that's what I knew. And I left the family business and worked for IBM and other companies, but came back to the debt collection business. I mean, it's fun to, deal with the hospitals and um, the other creditors and then work with the debtors that want to. But I found that the the creditors, the providers, were not as caring as I was. And they would be like, Dad, just sue the bastards. And I'm like, no, I don't think we should sue this one. I mean, it's just like a, it, was, it wasn't like aligned with what I, I thought, cared about. So it took me a long time to find really good clients that really cared about the customer more um, and wanted us to do things, you know, that went out of the way. They have to pay more for that. They didn't like that. But that's what I did. So then, uh, miraculously, this idea came around. It, there's no way my my co-founder, Jerry Ashton, and I, who's, Jerry's one of the best collectors in the world, um, there's no way we would have come up with this idea. We were like, why would we forgive debt when we can collect it? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, come on, forgiving debt. (laughs) Well, we saw that this other company, a nonprofit, was doing this. And we said, I wonder wonder how it's working. Well, we kept looking at the, the news clips and they abolished 5 million here and 10 million here. And I was like, that sounds really interesting. I said, and then at the end of 2013, they shut their website down. So we're not going to accept any more money. And I looked at Jerry and I said, you know, I think this looks like something we should do. We're really qualified to do it. We know all the people that are in the debt buying business and the hospital CFOs. 
let's just focus on medical debt because medical debt's different than any other kind of debt. You don't ask for it. You have an illness or an accident and it just hits you on the head. I said, it's not like a big screen TV. You bought it and you can't pay it. So why don't we do this? So we started in January of 2014 and we proceeded to go into poverty. <laughs> we couldn't, we knew how to do this debt thing, but we didn't know how to raise money. Mm-hmm. We were horrific at it. <laughs> we, we like, we raised like $2,800 the first year. Um, my wife's like, why are we going into debt to help people get out of debt? <laughs> sure. Wrong with you. I had to go to my pastor and say, I'm, I'm not providing for my family, but I'm trying to help people. Am I doing wrong? I'm like, I was really, you know, vexed by it, but I kept going. My wife didn't demand that I stop. And we went on like this for two and a half years, not making a penny. Um, you know, I'm shoveling snow and substitute teaching, doing whatever I have to do. So, then we got asked to be on HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. And he donated to us in that segment $15 million of debt. Wow. And we were pointed to above the shoulder that I did this through RIP medical debt so that the people don't get taxed on this cancellation of debt. And then he pushed this big button and, you know, Thousands and thousands of dollars of fake money came from the ceiling, and uh, that, that was it. But the, all this $15 million of debt, poof, vanished. And we sent letters out to each person telling them that their debt was forgiven because of a generous gift. Oh, my God. And that's how it started. So from that $15 million, we now have $1.5 billion. Wow. It took a long time, but we uh, we finally got there. I mean, this is this is a thing where uh, it's this idea that I came across a lot in my Bad With Money podcast, which was like, we've learned to live with a system that is legal but not ethical. Like we've we've accepted when you're talking about um, people who are like, well, I, if I don't pay my debts, I'm a bad person. But like we rarely judge the places that are making it impossible to recover from an illness, something that you've you've said you don't ask for. And I think that there's a lot of people who feel like I, it's my pride. I don't want to take charity. But the system is a racket. I mean, the system is broken. The system is definitely broken. Um, we, uh, we as a people, we have to be in control of our own destiny. We have to make sure, for example, I just, because we had a high deductible plan, I invested in an HSA, health savings account. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm making sure that although my plan isn't great, I'm protected because I'm saving up for the time that it happens. So we have to make sure that people know that there's a, an additional responsibility they have to take. Now, it's very easy for me to say that. Like when I was in poverty starting this, I couldn't have done it, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to put the hat on of what it was like when I was in poverty. Mm-hmm. Like, shoot, how could I possibly have saved in an HSA? How could I even afford insurance um, even? So are we really thinking that the people that are in poverty, should they make sure that we make sure that they can't be harmed? You know, people, it's funny, people don't go bankrupt 
when they're very poor, right? But I think it's possible that they go bankrupt because their asset is them. Like usually you go bankrupt to protect your assets. And people don't think that they are the asset that they have to protect. Because if they get calls and calls and calls and letters to the point where they they get anxieties and they don't even want to answer the phone, they don't want to go to the door for the mail, they don't want to do anything, that's a problem. So they should maybe think about starting over with a with a bankruptcy to protect their own psyche and maybe not have a stigma about that. You need a clean slate. You need a new start if something really bad happens to you. Well, there's a huge um, stigma on bankruptcy uh, just from yeah. a, a night, the whole thing where you have to declare it uh, publicly and then also uh, that it does affect your credit score. Yes, it does. Um, however, many, like a, a mortgage company will oftentimes lend you when you have a bankruptcy more than you had it before because you're a better risk. Why? So you're right. Well, because they, they know that you don't have these other obligations anymore. Mm. Oh. You're not in debt anymore. They want you to only spend about 40 to 43% of your income. So if 10 or 15% of your income was going to all these credit cards and debts, other debts, and they can see them, well, you're not going to be able to get a mortgage. Right. I find Zillow had a big thing that said one of the biggest reasons why people are not getting mortgages is because of medical debt. So we have to somehow figure a way to eradicate the debt. I don't know if our way is the best way where we're buying, we might buy 10,000 debts, a hundred million dollars of accounts from a hospital, but heck, that's only 10,000. We need millions of accounts to be bought. We need top-down reform because this is the sort of thing where uh, the government should be taking care of its people. And instead, we've normalized the people taking care of each other. So, for instance, you guys, GoFundMe, you caring, all these things, uh, it's now falling. It's very interesting to me when someone will, like, for instance, someone tweeted at me and they were uh, very anti-social services, very anti-Medicare for all. Uh, but then I looked at their bio and they had a GoFundMe link for their friend in their bio. So it's this normalization of what you guys are doing, which is very admirable without people realizing that, you know, you don't have to do this, that there is a way in which the government should be doing this. Well, the bad thing about it, what's going to happen, I've noticed when the government got involved with Medicare and Medicaid, all of a sudden the cost jumped up dramatically like so much if we get the if we get the government involved in the actual care they are not the government's not very good at, at creating systems that keep costs down but do you think that would be different if it was medicare for all and they weren't also competing with private insurance um I I don't know how it would work. I, I know Medicaid is one of the best insurances, but there's a stigma on getting that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of the best insurances you can get. Um, I don't know anybody ever that has ever had any debt when they had Medicaid. I know people that have had debt when they've had Medicare. Mm-hmm. I know people that have had had you know hundreds of thousands of dollars clawed back from them after a loved one went into a, a home. Um, it's it's atrocious how the Medicare system works when they when they 
and it might be Medicaid. I'm trying to remember. Maybe it's Medicaid where they now they lose their whole life savings back to Medicaid after their loved one, you know, got help. You know, it's it's really it's really sad. I know that one thing. If if we just change the payer to a government, we haven't changed the underlying system where all the costs are really starting. I mean, there's multiple hospitals and in cities, they're competing against each other for patients. Um, it does seem like there's, there's the, some wrong alignment of hospitals with their, their communities. I think that's one thing. I've noticed a couple of hospitals adding on wing after wing and their city didn't even need it. Like, well, why do that? So, to seem more prestigious at the expense of keeping care affordable. Yeah, I mean, so that's a that's a big problem. But what's going to happen though? Right now, the people there's two parts of um of insurance. I mean, there's two parts of patient responsibility. One is self pay if you don't have insurance at all. The other part is balance after insurance. When you combine those two. That's the patient responsibility. The patients today are only able to pay about 55% of that amount. And that amount is close to $500 billion a year. It's just Mm. for hospitals alone. Now, they only pay about 55%. That leaves about $200 billion a year that they're responsible for. Now, they can't pay that. And it it gets placed with collection agency after collection agency gets sold and it accumulates. Now, if that number accumulates more and more and more to where now it's 500 billion that they can't pay 600 billion. Well, guess what? It's going to hurt the hospitals so much that they're going to have to think of a new way or they're going to go out of business. What's the new way? way? Well, they're going to have to come up with a new way to deliver the services that people can afford. They're pricing themselves out of the marketplace. So, so they're, people are not going to be able to afford it, and then they're going to revolt. And some other new system is going to have to come in place. And I don't know what that is, but some, something's got to give. If we can't keep on increasing the cost of health care the way that it's going, instead of $3 trillion, it's going to be $6 trillion in the like, next eight years. So you're saying the idea that we transfer who pays for this stuff to the government uh, in terms of like Medicare for all, um, it's not addressing the, co- the the real cause, which is that the drug companies and the hospitals are charging astronomically for care? Yes. But don't you think that we could change the way that the government negotiates with the hospitals and with like pharmaceutical companies to reduce the cost for care? And drugs? Well, they um, they probably can, they probably can ne- negotiate, but they really don't know how to negotiate with them. I mean, they're just are they going to say that everybody's going to pay Medicaid prices? And they they barely break even on Medicaid prices, but they do it. I, you know, maybe if they did it, that I guess that would put a shock into the system. Yeah, it would um, at least cause something, something to, to change, right? It would at least cause something to change and not have um, the status quo be what everyone assume. You know, I think people assume like, 
well, there's no way it's going to get better. The way it is is just the way it is. Well, think about this. If there's only 5,500 hospitals in this country and there's 3,000 counties, many of those counties only have one hospital. A couple of them have no hospitals. Imagine if we cut the amounts that those people are making, those hospitals are making. We're going to lose access to care. You think, and they think the government's going to put a hospital in the place? Like, all right, we're going to have to take over and put in a hospital. I don't know. I don't think that they're going to do it. You don't see a solution? Or what do you, like, what, I know that what you're doing is incredible with the charity, but like in terms of changing policy, what do you think is the best solution? You know, I don't, I don't know. I know that the cost is the key, not who pays for it. You make a very good point about having leverage to actually, you know, get them to charge less. That's what they do um, in other countries. I mean, other countries, uh, the government negotiates with the phar- the exact same pharmaceutical companies that we have here for different costs. And then for whatever reason, the uh, well, I know what reason, for, because we're capitalists and love private institutions, we don't. We don't, nego- we, don't nego- systems, we, don't ne- yeah. we don't negotiate the same way with these companies. That's a good point. I, you know, I'm, it's, it's too bad that I don't know what the heck we're supposed to do with, with the, the state of the, uh, of the healthcare system. I know that it's a mess and it's probably going to be worse and worse coming up, but I don't have a solution. I mean, that's partly why you start something like RIP medical debt, because you're like, I don't know what the solution is other than people having empathy and helping each other. I know. You know, we're just helping all these injured people, medical debt injured people, get back to normal and help them get out of hardship. And But we don't always have the answer. I wish that our company wouldn't have to be in existence. I hope in the next 10 years we can go out of business. Mm-hmm. And go do something else. Go help student loans for people that can't get jobs. But right now, this is such a problem that we have to do something about it. And at least a a person can give a hundred dollars and abolish a ten thousand dollar debt, or ten thousand and abolish a million. Yeah. And that's 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 not okay. But it's it's we got to do something for the people that are being harmed. And do these people know that you're doing this for them, or they just one day get a letter in the mail? It's a random act of kindness, though. They don't apply for it. They just get it. We use data from TransUnion. That's a great partner of ours. And we add this data to all these accounts, and we find the people that are either in hardship the most or the least, uh, like they're at poverty level, and and we figure out which ones to help, and then we send them a letter and say, your debt's been forgiven. Oh, my God. No You're like attached. Santa. Right? <laughs> um, quick question that people ask, like, so when if you have medical debt uh, and you die, do you what happens to it? In eight states, you inherit debt just like you inherit assets. <laughs> so can you imagine in the will, you have inherited my $100,000 of medical debt. So that's sad to say, but it does happen. Other than that, you don't have to pay for your loved one's bill if you did not co-sign for it. Right. So a lot of times uh, that's the thing is people are like, I'll just die with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've had people, I read this, I don't know, about six months ago. A lady, unfortunately, is in the hospital on her deathbed. 
She's with her daughter, and she's instructing her daughter to sell one of her pieces of jewelry to pay for her brother's, you know, her daughter's brother, her brother's um, operation that he had like 20 years ago. So there are a lot of people that are not taking a cavalier attitude and saying, I'm just going to take it to my grave. Right. There's people that, that care all the way up to their grave that they want the debt to be paid. So there are people that like are unbelievable in their desire to pay a bill that they owe. So I've, I've seen the gamut. And all they did was get sick. Do the people that you've helped ever reach out to you guys to say thank you or to share the rest of their story? Yeah, they do. They do. They send letters. They send pictures. You know, thank God I was praying for you. Uh, I saw you on TV and I thought there was no way that this would ever happen to me. Or, um, you know, God bless you, my two sons. And, and she tells a picture of, of the both of them. And one said that he, he could actually now get a mortgage because the medical debt was actually hurting his credit and he couldn't get one. Wow. Uh, so we do get a tremendous amount of people. You can go on, on, on Google and look up all the um, TV stations that have interviewed people that have had their debt abolished. And it's just amazing. Nashville is one of the most incredible. I think they had like five people contact them and tell them that they were so excited about having their medical debt abolished because a lot of TV stations will actually abolish debt for their community. You know, churches yeah. too. We got to take oh care of each other. Churches, synagogues, mosques, oh my God. TV There's stations. No doubt. And this goes back, this, this forgiving of debt is not something, you know, recent. This goes back to scripture. You know, the Quran, Islam, um, you've got Judaism, Catholicism. I mean, it's all in the in those those books, my Bible, and uh, it talks about forgiving debt. Yeah. And, and so the churches are just like, I, I had a, over 100 churches this year give money to us and abolish over $500 million of debt. Wow. I feel like this is such a great charity because it's so obvious what your money does. Like there's yeah, no, it goes right to it. Right. There's yeah. no confusion of like, well, does this really help people? Or, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, they donate this, but does the country need that? Or, you yeah, know, and this yeah, is yeah. like, we, this is like America. We know that this is helping Americans and it like is an immediate relief for them. Yeah. I think the same way. And I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to start this and persevered through it. Cause when you're in the collection industry, like we were, there's nothing you can do that's any rem anywhere remotely as fulfilling as helping people, like every single day. Like mm -hmm. we're sending out 240,000 letters this month to people. Wow. Like that's just unbelievable. <laughs> you used your powers for good and not evil, Craig. Yeah, I was very lucky. A devil on one side and an angel on the other, and I'm glad that the uh, angel is looking on me better. <laughs> oh, well, it just goes to show that you can always change your path. Yes, I prayed for this for a long time. So I'm very fortunate. I am blessed. And we are fortunate that you guys exist and that you're doing the work that you do. Oh, thanks. And now, would you like to play a game show? <laughs> I would love to play on a game show. Okay. Your game show. Yes. Wonderful. This game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are the two contestants. 
I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask clarifying questions, and then you will tell me what you would do in that scenario, and then I arbitrarily decide if you were right. Okay. <laughs> our, first, our first game show is, Are You a Terrible Parent? Your child wants to get a tattoo of Baby Yoda on his stomach. <laughs> you think he is too young to make that kind of decision, so in order to deter him, you get a large tattoo of Baby Yoda on your stomach. His desire to get the tattoo is instantly gone, and he will no longer go to the public pool with you. Are you a terrible parent? Wow, Craig? You're a definite terrible parent. Why? Because that's going to be on your belly, and you're going to embarrass your kids for the rest of their lives. But it's not on their <laughs> belly. Well, how old was the child? Fifteen. Oh, my God. Well, who was going to tattoo a 15-year-old? <laughs> well, they, they were going to get emancipated. I don't think that's how emancipation <laughs> works, Allison. I don't think you get emancipated and you can just drink and join the army and get tattoos. Oh, yeah. That's why people do it. Okay. Well... <laughs> Uh, first of all, what a, I feel like in a few years, Baby Yoda will be a very dated reference. Yeah. I think uh, you probably took one for the team. Mm -hmm. You know, you saved your kid. Uh, but I got to think there would be a better way to do this. Which is what? What if you got like a big fake temporary tattoo of Baby Yoda and made them think that it was a real tattoo of Baby Yoda? Well, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah, then you're a great parent. So I solved then you're it. You're a great parent. Yeah. All right. And you never yeah. go to the pool again. <laughs> yeah, you can never you can never show them your belly again. Right. Let them believe it's real. <laughs> but never show it to them. So Gabby won, Craig zero. <laughs> yes. Our next game. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your significant other of two years has been pen pals with a ghost since college. Although they have never met the ghost, the ghost is in Europe, they have formed a romantic attachment and kept the relationship from you because you have said repeatedly that you don't believe in ghosts. Would you stay with this cheater? Is the ghost writing letters back to them? Yeah. How do they know it's a ghost? They just know. And how, how did this start? Uh, one day they found this letter... Um, from when the person was alive in their in their dorm room, and so they they sent a letter back, just sort of like you know to be silly, and then they received a, a letter from the ghost. Okay, this is like a Nicholas Sparks novel. <laughs> um, wow. Does Gabby get to go first this time? No, you get to go. No, first. Craig, please tell us what you would do. Well, the the romantic part is an interesting part. If it's a ghost, like what's the big deal? Because it's a fantasy. So I think if it's a fantasy with a ghost, then I think she should be able to do it, regardless of whether I believe in ghosts or not. Okay, but to be clear, the ghost is real. <laughs> oh, then it's a real ghost. I think it's a, it's a fine thing for her to do that if she wants to. Because they'll never meet in real life? Yeah, they'll never meet in real life. And then if, if it really is helping her and she needs that ghost... She's had that ghost for a long time. I think she should have have the ghost now. That's Who such a beautiful answer. That is really romantic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm just giving it to Craig. He gets no, the point. No, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's one to one as we enter our final game. Oh Ooh. my goodness, she didn't even get a chance. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> that that was a perfect answer. I bow out. <laughs> oh. Okay. Our final game. 
Would you lie or tell the truth? While on a job interview, your potential future employer mistakenly thinks you've survived cancer and hires you on the spot just for being an inspiration. Would you lie or tell the truth? The pay is very good. Why does he think I survived cancer? Because you posted about um, being in a walk for cancer on your social media, and they mistakenly meant, thought that you were walking because you had cancer. Wow. How good is the pay? Very good. Like life-changingly good? 300K a year. Well, gosh. But like, what are the consequences of this person thinking I survived cancer? Yeah, so like you'll have to continue the lie because your employer will bring it up all the time. No, not worth it. And then, not no? worth it. No, I would feel so awful. I would feel like sick to my stomach. <laughs> no, no, no. Craig? I would definitely not lie. I would try to find out is having cancer really the reason why you'd want to hire me? True. Like, what does that have to do with anything? They respect your will to live. What and kind of job is this? Um, it's for the CIA. Now, hold on a second. <laughs> I love these. I love these things, Allison. You have a very good imagination, and you're on the spot. Unless you've created these profile questions in advance, way far in advance. I wish I did, but no. <laughs> no, they just come from her brain, which is a terrifying place. I uh, love it. Um, wow. Uh, I, well, you know what? I don't want to work for the CIA, and I'll tell you why. Because it's a, a terrorist organization. And they're obviously oh my God. <laughs> they're obviously very bad at finding out correct information. Oh my god, you're right. The CIA <laughs> didn't even do good research. <laughs> wow. So you know what? You went on to work for the FBI. I, you know, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. How can people donate? Uh, they can just go to www. R-I-P, like rest in peace, R-I-P medical dot org. And on there, you'll see the big donate button. Amazing. And it'll show you, it'll show you if you donate certain amounts, how much debt that'll equate to. Because all you have to do is add two zeros to the amount that you're giving. And it tells you exactly how much, but at least the calculator does it. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're so welcome. Stick around after the break, everyone. We'll be talking about, can people really change? <sighs> I, yes? Uh, <laughs> we'll find out. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 Baby. This week on the show, I want to talk about can people really change? Oh, boy. I think, drum roll, please. Absolutely. Yes. I agree that they can. Now, it depends on if they want to. Very true. Most uh, people don't want to. I think that most people think that they can't. Oh, go on. I think that there is a preconception that, like, old dogs can't learn new tricks. People can't change. You know, you're born, like, nature versus nurture. I think that there's just, like, people like knowing who they are, mm -hmm. even if they have a lot of flaws. Sure. So they'll just be like, well, I'm this way, and that's just the way that I am. 
Because uh, yep. it's a comfort to be able to identify yourself. Yep. But it's also a huge hindrance because you can change all of the time. And I would argue you should change all the time. Especially because people uh, label themselves as unlovable or like, th- I'm going to go specific. They're like, I'm the single friend. I'm mm-hmm. unlovable. I'm single all the time. I'm bad at dating, whatever it is. And it's like, then they meet someone or they start dating and they get scared and they freak themselves out of like being with this person because like, they're like, oh, I'm a commitment phobe, which like, just shed the labels. Like you're, you, you can change at any time. You're not your identity is not tied to like what you've done in the past or what you've historically been. And you're getting in the way of your own happiness. I think that that's very true. And a hard part with this is often admitting that there's something wrong with you in the first place. For sure. Like if you love being single, good for you. But if you're passing on opportunities. But I'm talking more about like that maybe I have a lot of angry outbursts mm-hmm. or maybe I'm bad at communicating mm-hmm. or I don't work out or, you right. know, for me, okay, I've changed a lot. For a long time, I behaved badly. I was overly sensitive. I was a negative thinker. I needed a lot more attention, I think, from other people. I needed a lot more outside validation. Yeah, um, sure. And I let my OCD interfere with my life a lot more than I did. Uh, And you would say, oh, it's because I'm OCD, I can't change? Well, I would just be like, well, this is the kind of person that I am. Right. But I think it's so important to, like, recognize – I'm always looking at myself and I'm always saying, what about me do I want to change? How can I be better? How can I be better? And if you don't like something about yourself, you can change it. Absolutely. And even things, so like recently I went back to school. So I'm a yep. student again. That's mm-hmm. like not a thing I thought I would be, but I, I'm i doing it. And then more personally, like I, okay, so I like lost a couple of friendships in like the last year. And at first your response is like, okay, fuck those people. I'm the best. You know, I can't believe they lost me, the best friend ever. <laughs> but then I'm like, okay, so this appears to be a pattern that I'm losing friends. And so I was like, okay, so maybe I need to look at my own behavior, which is uncomfortable and yucky. Nobody likes doing Nobody that. likes to do that. And then I was like, okay, so maybe an issue that I'm having is that I'm too blunt. You know, like maybe I've like had this persona that I'm like so blunt and I say what I think and like I'm brutally honest per the tagline of this show. Sure. And I'm like, you know what? That doesn't seem to be working. (laughs) Yeah. That's, like, obviously, like, I think caused issues in relationships and and friendships. And maybe that's something I need to work on and change. I have willpower. I just have to use my willpower. (laughs) You know, like, we all have willpower within ourselves. It's just, like, a lot of energy to exert it. Um, But it's worth it. Yeah. I've changed a lot as well. I think um, I think I learned a couple really hard lessons and thank God I like took something from them. I think if you're right, if things aren't going well uh, in particular ways, you can sit down and assess and like be self-aware enough to be like, maybe it's me and also change those things. Like I think I had a lot of arrogance um, and it got me in trouble all the time and I knew it was arrogance. And so I, I just, I don't know. I just sat down and was like, you don't know everything. Be a little humble. Um, And that has benefited me hugely. Uh, And I think I thought it was like, well, my persona is that of an arrogant person. My persona is someone who's never wrong. But it feels so good to be like, I'm wrong. 
I don't, or like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of it, let me just say, uh, a lot of it is youth. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of it was like growing up. What's really helped me change. And I, and they always say like you change as you get older and stuff. But what really helped me change was getting older. That was huge. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could have rushed it. But what about somebody who's like a murderer? <sighs> well, I think there are people who are genuinely sorry. Mm-hmm. Genuinely. Like genuinely sorry. They they better themselves. They really realize that they made a huge mistake. Like, you know, there's a difference between people who can be reformed uh, and then other people who can't. But also, you know, then you look at uh, the lack of mental health services uh, available and the lack of understanding about certain mental illnesses and the lack of understanding about white supremacy or um, misogyny that leads to a lot of uh, serial killers, I'll say mostly men. So we tend to not look at the root of problems. We tend to just um, say, well, they're a bad person and they can't change. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's all We have to give them the resources to change. Yes, that's the thing. And and more interpersonally, you do have to ha- give yourself the resources to change, too. I think a big part of it, like we said at the beginning, is the desire to change. Huge desire to change and to do the uncomfortable work of changing, of disengaging, of, um, I mean, really taking responsibility, really being accountable I mean, I don't want to say, like, you have to make up for what you did, but there's a lot of people who do think that and who are like, I, yes, I did this terrible thing, but now I work in charities or I, you know, I do work in addiction recovery or in mental health services. Or, I mean, you know. Craig went from being a debt collector to having a charity that clears medical debt. Exactly. People like, change, baby. They really do. Um, so I am uncomfortable with the idea that of like an eye for an eye and that like nobody can change and there's no nuance to anything. And, um, you know, I hope a lot of my exes who did shitty things, like my hope is, is that they've changed rather than be like, fuck them forever. A lot of what I think now, perhaps that's just getting older, but a lot of what I think is like, I, I hope, I hope that they're different. I had an ex that was violent and I'm like, you know what? I, I'm not even angry. I'm just like, I hope I hope he's gotten help and I hope he's changed. I think a big part of changing successfully is believing that it's possible, right? So yes. it's not just like, okay, I'll try to change, but good luck to me. It's really being like, this is a manageable, doable thing and I shall achieve it. it and will knowing suck, you're wrong. And I might have setbacks and I might not change all the time, but I'm going to strive for this goal that is attainable. And knowing you're wrong and knowing you need to change and admitting that. Mm-hmm. Like I would uh, – when I would think about this ex, I would be like – I uh, minusculely, like I hope he's sober. I hope he is in therapy about his issues with his father. I hope – you know what I mean? Like there's big steps that needed to happen. But I don't think like – am I like this is an inherently bad person? I don't know. I also think it's really important to recognize when the people around you have changed. Yes. So I think a lot of times, especially in families, someone will do a lot of self-improvement and the family will still treat them like they were 10 years ago. Yes. And that's really tough because it, one, like your change is like not acknowledged and two, like it's you're more likely to kind of fall into that past behavior if everyone's if everyone is like, you're so moody, you're so moody and mm-hmm. like you really worked on not being moody, like that's going to fucking make you moody. Right. <laughs> so just like 
help people out and like acknowledge the change and support the change. And I know that there is like um, this like inherent response to people based on their past behavior. So sometimes you have to work on changing that. Yeah. You know, so if like let's say you're afraid that your sister's moody, you're always going to be a little defensive around her. But then you notice, oh, she's actually really worked on that. You have to then work on not being so defensive around her. And say, hey, I've noticed you really worked on this. That's amazing. I'm totally. proud of you. I want to talk about like the idea of – and this is going to get a little bit into cancel culture. But like that you you can't learn from your mistakes. You can't change. You can't um, – that once someone does something bad one time, they're done forever. I just think I just think there's a lot of um, stuff where the person has really learned their lesson. Obviously, there's certain people, let's say – who uh, are repeat offenders and who will say, oh, I learned my lesson, I'm so sorry, and then do the same fucking thing again. Um, But I also think that there needs to be an extension of more nuance and compassion and uh, to people that actually are, like, that actually did learn something. And on the flip side, if you fuck up and you uh, realize that you were wrong about something, um, don't double down. That's what I was going to say. I think... Almost as much attention as we pay to the thing that someone does wrong, we have to pay attention to how they then handle being called out on it. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So is it is it def- is it defensive? Is it denial? Is it doubling down? Or is it like, oh my god, I'm so sorry? <laughs> yeah, I had a really interesting uh, thing on this podcast where I, I mean, I talk over everyone, and I know that, and I have to get better at that. I'm just trying not to talk over people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a thing that listeners pointed out. Right. And and so I'm really trying to work on it. But if I had been like, that's just me, I talk over everyone. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, it's the response to it, which was like, hey, I'm, I responded and was like, hey, I'm so sorry. Like, I'll be on the lookout for it now. Right. Well, Easy to do. You know, and I'm just so excited to see who I'll have changed into in five years. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll be taller. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> Tamika, want to come on in and share your thoughts? Whoa, look at this coat. Oh, do you like it? Look at this fancy coat. Very cute. It's so cute. Thank you. Tamika's dressed very cute today. (laughs) She Um, hates this. How do you know that? (laughs) What do you mean? Because your face was like. (sighs) I look super uncomfortable. That's what she's trying to say. Do you get uncomfortable receiving compliments? I do. I'm trying to get better at it. Hey. And we believe that you can. Thank you. We're going to compliment you every time we see you from now on. Please don't. Yeah. Her cheeks will burn off. <laughs> what do we rate the episode? I rate it uh, two out of two bipolar twos. Hey, Woo! clever. I will rate it um, $1 million for $10,000 of medical debt. Does that make sense? <laughs> like if you pay $10,000? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, I love pay, it. Yeah, then you wipe out a million dollars. Math. Tamika? I get nothing. I'm Come sorry. On, I'm Tamika. really thinking. I'm really thinking. Okay. 10 out of 10 great questions because I feel like Thanks. you guys had really awesome questions during the interview. Oh, thank, oh, thank, you. thank you. What did we learn? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? So much. Mm-hmm. I learned so much. I mean, it's also fascinating uh, to know how much religious organizations help with medical debt. Yeah. What did you learn, Allison? I learned how different it is between, like, what you can pay the debt off for versus what the people are in debt for. Like, the fact that, like, you can buy off the debt for so much less money. Um, I also learned more about – I guess I didn't realize the importance of of telling your partner when you feel nothing for them because – 
I think sometimes I I always sometimes kind of str- you can keep it to yourself. Yeah, I always struggle with what to keep to yourself and what what to share. But I think that the idea of just like giving them the general idea of like sometimes my mood is going to be different because of this is very important. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't phrase it. Thinking back on it, I would not phrase it. I feel nothing. <laughs> uh, but I would say like, hey, I'm not really feeling uh, physical touch. Right. I'm not really feeling um, overt like lovey dovey stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Totally fine. And it has nothing to do with you, and I still love you. Exactly. Thank you, Craig and Tico, for being a guest. We learned so much, and we really appreciate it. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Please uh, rate and subscribe, and also go to podswag.com for merch. Tamika, you look great. Thank you. <laughs> Stitcher. 